like the show? Want to listen to episodes early? Consider becoming a patron. Starting at the $3 a month level, patrons get access to a custom patron-only feed where we put out episodes of Upstairs Studio podcasts like the Child Care Bar and Grill, Miss Becky's Classroom, That Early Childhood Nerd, the Renegade Rules podcast, and others early. That feed is just for patrons. You could be one of them. Go to patreon.com slash playvolutionhq or click the link in the show description to learn more. Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of That. I'm Heather Burnt Santi, and I'm super, super excited about the guests on this episode. Um, they are the authors of the book Children's Lively Minds Schema Theory Made Visible. Um, I've got Deb Curtis and Nadia Habanetta. So, hello and welcome, and thank you. Hi. Would you would you each just tell the the listeners about yourself a little bit? You can fight about who starts. <laughs> Deb, who? <laughs> I'm letting you start. Okay. <laughs> okay. Start. Thank you. Hi, everybody. My name is Nadia, and I'm from San Francisco, California. I'm a proud Peruvian. My parents immigrated here in the 1960s, and I have been living in San Francisco ever since. I've been in early childhood for 21 years now. I have my bachelor's and master's degree from San Francisco State University, and I've recently reconnected with them, and I'm teaching a course there uh, with students who are getting their BA. I'm also working during the day with preschoolers, ages four and five, at Pacific Primary School, and I also have two children, and I am very excited to be here today. Yay, thank you. Okay, Deb, now it's your turn. I'm Deb. <laughs> Curtis, um, what can I say? My parents immigrated here too from Italy, but that was a zillion years ago. Um, <laughs> I've been in early childhood since 1969 when I was 17 years old, and I worked in the very first Head Start program in uh, my community in Southern California, and I've been doing it ever since. You can do the math. I still <laughs> love it <laughs> because. I still am learning um, all the time with children. Mm -hmm. um, I also have written many books about early childhood. I've been really blessed to do that. But I've kept my feet in the classroom mm -hmm. uh, for the last 20 years. I went back to work with children about 20 years ago. And it's my work. I love it more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And when I'm not doing that, 
I'm working side by side with teachers doing these observation projects and that's how I met Nadia. It's been a long time ago now, I think about 10 years ago mm-hmm. that we met and we were observing and studying children and that launched our uh, professional as well as personal relationship. So I'm happy to be here too because we are nerds and the title <laughs> when we by your name, we identify as early childhood nerds. So yeah. It's nice That's to be great. with the crowd. Excellent. Yeah. And and the listeners will, will recognize your name, Deb, because I talk about the books that you and Margie have done together on about every episode. <laughs> They've been so influential. Um, That's so. I have no retirement besides that because I'm in early childhood. So. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll just keep <laughs> keep those titles out there all the time. Um, so this book that, that YouTube worked on together, Children's Lively Minds, um, I it, it just came out this summer, I think. And that's when I got it. Um, and I am I'm so enjoying it. It's been on the back burner for me for a while to figure out more about um, schema theory in terms of our work with early ch- with uh, young children. And uh uh, this so so the book is really great for me for that reason, um, uh, but I find that then as I'm having conversations with people about schema theory, and I present it as something that's relatively new in the United States to be talking about, I I get a little bit of pushback because people think I'm talking specifically about Piaget, or specifically about the kinds of schema that psychology. Uh, as a field has been talking about and using, and it's different from both of those things. So I wanted to first ask you guys to give to give the listeners a, a sort of nutshell definition of what you mean by schema theory. Um, you want me to go? Um, well, what I was just going to say is that, that okay, Deb? Yeah. You can, um, I think Deb <laughs> will geek out on what what it means, um, which I always like to let her do. But I just wanted to say that when I first learned about schema theory in New Zealand, I did not get it. I was like, what? And I went straight to, you know, Piaget and just like, I don't, I don't get it. And thinking about psychology. And the second I came back to work after my trip to New Zealand, day one with being with the children, it was like a click. I'm like, oh my gosh, I get it. I'm seeing it everywhere. And it was from Uh then on that we... We started this group um, via text message where we're sending all these photos that we were studying together and look at this schema and that schema and began writing together. So once it clicks, you're seeing it everywhere and seeing how uh-huh. children are learning and seeing all these different just threads of their brains developing. And um, But I'll let Deb give the, the ECE nerd <laughs> definition. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure it's an ECE nerd. <laughs> our, our nerd definition. Um, so I studied schema theory about from Piaget 100 years ago in college, but hadn't really revisited. And from what I understand, and when we were writing this book, I wanted to make sure I had all the references mm-hmm. to it, so I did some research. And Piaget identified schemas as these threads of thought. Um, that you see reflected in children's play. So what I'm understanding about that, schemas are used in psychology as basically these um, conceptual things that come together that create a schema. Like for children, it could be like kitty, right? Kitties meow, they mm-hmm. purr, they have pointy ears, they have whiskers, um, and they have long tails. So children start to get that notion of all these elements of kitty, and so... 
form a <clears throat> schema, which is a, a reflected in their brain pathways. So they now have this idea of kitty forever, right? So mm-hmm. that was some of the stuff I learned. But really, the source of our nerdness uh, it <laughs> starts from from my study. What I understand this uh, person in the UK named Chris Achi, and she wrote a book. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. We, we, we cited and I've studied it. And he, Is it Extending uh, Thinking or something like that? Extending yeah. Thought in Young There, that's anyway, it, yeah. Anyway, he studied um, children and looked at many theories, including this one. And she started identifying it as actions, children's actions in their play that are reflective of, these, of schematic exploration. So... They identified about 40 of them. Mm-hmm. And then when we learned about them, it was from New Zealand because they use it as a central place of their curriculum planning, this schematic explorations. Um, so we started noticing it, like Ladia said, sending photos. Oh, my God, look at this. And then sharing it with other people, and people wanted to know more. Mm-hmm. And the sources of information were from books from New Zealand and Great Britain. And in those books, all the kids are white, which is really problematic for my sure. And um, uh, they're either very curriculum-y, activity-oriented, or um, academically oriented. So we wanted to do something different, uh-huh. a book first children whom we work with daily, and stories about our work and our thinking. So it's not an academic book. It's us looking at what we discovered our own teacher research. So mm-hmm. that's the nutshell, the geeky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't have them all memorized, but the, the schema that you use in the book are um, like transporting, trajectory. You can probably Trans- list them all. Transforming. Yeah. and perspective, connection. Um, what's the other ones? Uh, <laughs> but they're in there yeah yeah and so they're they really are sort of um uh I like to think of a, of a schema as like a file folder and as you as as children are and you can tell me if this is ridiculous but as children are interacting and playing and working we can see kind of which folder they're putting their experiences into like trajectory well mm-hmm. they um, you know, that's an experiment with motion that I'm seeing, or that's an experiment with, um, oh, what's another element of a tra- trajectory schema? Um, Closer, putting stuff inside something. Right, right, I'm carrying things. Some, yeah. Yeah, so well, anyway, I, it's been very helpful for me to then look at some of those behaviors, and you said this in the book, that maybe used to drive us crazy, like dumping and carrying oh, and um, hoarding toys. It still does drive us crazy. <laughs> we just have a different <laughs> But now you, you look at it differently. Well, yeah. So, so image besides a file folder that actually now with all of this brain research and brain imaging that you can actually see uh, neurons moving across brain to connect brain pathways together. So that's really uh-huh. what they're doing as they repeat something over and over again. They're strengthening the brain pathways for that understanding about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more they do it, the stronger that is. And uh, my other nerdy geek thing is this: is this, all this stuff about brain development that mm-hmm. uh, to me is so powerful that it's not just some 
ordinary moment that's happening. It's something extraordinary. Their brains are making connections, and we can't assess it and check it off on a box, but we can just understand this repeated sure. behavior is creating this strength of understanding about the world. So, yeah, and and for me, it helps. It helps sort of validate the way that I try to trust children and the way that I try to keep always in mind that they are competent to sort of figure out what they need to learn in that moment. And this, this idea of schema theory has helped has, has helped me feel like um, I can trust myself to trust the children, if that makes sense. Um, so I want to read the, the quote from the book that, that, um, that we talked about uh, as a, as the starting point for the rest of the conversation. And it's this, um, we resist the current early education narrative that suggests children need to be readied for academic performance in the job market. We avoid quick fixes and strategies for, for curriculum planning and behavior management. We don't ask ourselves anymore what is working or not working to help children learn. Instead, we ask what is happening that reflects the details of children's deep desire and skills for learning. So could I ask each of you to speak to that and how that fits in with this idea of schema theory? I think oh, not. specifically working with the older <laughs> children, um, we get that question all the time. Well, what are they learning? Mm -hmm. And will they be ready for kindergarten? So um, learning about schema, I was able to share this lens with the um, teachers at my school with the families and really show how children's play reflected so much of these uh, these skills that they need so many of these skills they need um, for moving on to the their next journey mm -hmm. and how much learning they were doing so it wasn't about us um, setting something up like an activity this activity they're going to do this ABC and here's what they're going to learn but it was more about setting up the materials and really um, just watching to see where the children were going to take it and see all the learning that was happening. But it was always going to be a surprise what they were going to do with these materials, what learning was going to be happening. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to see even... Okay. Our intention in uh, when we're setting up our environment is not necessarily setting up an activity where there's an expectation of how the children are going to use it, but setting up an invitation and seeing where the children take it and really observing and seeing how just naturally the children were explored. There's so many schemas happening and so much learning. And one of the highlights um, almost in every schema is just that social piece and how important mm -hmm. that is for young children in moving on into the world of kindergarten. Right, which is such an underrated skill when we're talking about, if we if we have to talk about school readiness and job market, that social piece is so important, but so devalued sometimes um, from on our side of things uh, as we're working with young children. Thank you. So Deb, how would, how would you say that that's true for you, this, this quote that, that you're reject, rejecting or resisting those ideas? And, well, first of all, um, I want to thank you for bringing that quote, sort of plucking it out. <laughs> you know, we write so much and, and we send it out. Yeah. So I think you just wanted to post that somewhere. I read it and I'm like, oh, we did say that. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I thought. I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, to me, 
it's like just so full of meaning, mm-hmm. all of it, right? That um, we're trying to change the story about what's the story about childhood and children and learning. And there's this huge story now that they need to be fixed and ready to be in the world rather than the story of how incredible and skillful they already are, Mm -hmm. sort of the natural things they're born with. And so to me, that's one really important part of this is that here's a different story you can find, right? The story about school readiness is not going to go away. It's a true story, but it's not Mm -hmm. the only story, right? The other story is this story of what children's capabilities already are and how do we see them and draw on them to enhance what they already know how to do. So that to me is Mm -hmm. huge in that quote. Um, And that we, like Nadia says, we don't plan for some particular outcome. In fact, that is so limiting. It's so limiting about what's possible. And in fact, what the research suggests is that children are better learners Uh than we are. They actually can see more and hear more and experience things more deeply than adults and they have this incredible capacity because of the nature of their brain to take in a ton of information through their sensory apparatus. Um, And then to me the other really exciting thing is all this information is coming in, their brains are big and busy and bustling and then they have this innate uh, desire to try things out, <laughs> right? And to do it in a systematic way, to do it over and over again in many different ways with many different materials. So to me, that's like astounding that no one teaches them to dump and fill uh-huh. and dump and fill. In fact, right, we, we try not to let them do it. <laughs> it teaches them to make things fly across the room. But they do it again and again and again, and again, we stop that on behalf of safety. That's another story Uh that's true, right? That can be dangerous, or it can be messy, or it can be annoying. I don't want to disregard that, because I work with children. It's not easy. And they do these things that can be really challenging for adults and for what our our, uh, multitude of tasks we have to get done. But we have to see this Mm -hmm. other story, this amazing um, human at an early stage that has this incredible capability. So uh, they are intense researchers of the world. So I feel like I uh-huh. have to be, right? If I just I'm thinking I know everything or, or I just let them do whatever they want and it'll be fine, I think both those sides of the spectrum are really not uh, respectful to children. So alongside them, I want to be studying mm-hmm. like they are, studying them, studying what they see in the world. And from there, we can build mm-hmm. this thing together. Not all me directing, not all them doing whatever, but together we work and we can create mm-hmm. a different way to be. And to me, it gives yeah. me hope for humans because there's so many possibilities. Anyway, that's, <laughs> that's my perfect. morning Thank sermon. you. <laughs> we can close with a hymn, um, except I don't remember any. Um, so, so what you just said, Deb, though, re- sort of made a connection for me because, and and ties into what you said, Nadia, when you're talking about how we don't set out activities with an outcome in mind, or you don't set out an activity with an outcome in mind, but that's very much the traditional uh, view of teaching. And so, when we say to teachers then that maybe that's not the way children learn best, they feel sort of lost. 
like, well, then what is my role? And what is my purpose? And how do I use my skills in this classroom? But then Deb, what you were sort of describing is we watch and we see and then we can build on that by offering different materials or allowing for repeated experience and being able to talk about to someone else what's happening, then that's, that's where we come in as teachers, I feel like, uh, with this. So we're not passive bystanders, bystanders who are uninvolved and not, you know, not using our own skills and brains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to me, that's really important, both those sides of that. I think it's a tension. Uh-huh. And both are true, right? Mm-hmm. It's like both children benefit from grown-ups offering their wisdom. And they benefit from grown-ups leaving them <laughs> And they benefit from this connection together. Mm-hmm. So to both messages on these two ends of the, the tension are not enough, uh-huh. <laughs> right? We, we have to see the value of our role to be alongside them studying and not just this, oh, let them play. I used to be that way. I used to, like, train teachers for benign neglect because oh. I them interfere so often uh-huh. with all these amazing things children were doing inside. So if I could just get them to shut up and go away and watch the paintbrushes, I, that would be better for the kids than what I was seeing. Uh-huh. I've changed my point of view now since I've been back in the classroom and studying um, the schools of Reggio Emilia uh-huh. and all of this research. And now I see this active role of adult. And it's not necessarily doing something to the kids or for the kids. It's the active role of alongside them being a researcher. Mm -hmm. So I know what I might do or what I might choose or what might happen if I did this. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure I get that in because it's like this dichotomy is not enough for kids to have or, right. Or for us as a profession, uh-huh. honestly, to have that either or we've got to we've got to allow for that. The other stories, as you said, you've used that a couple times now. And I really like that it's a true story, but it's not the only story. Um, so I'm adding that to my language. Now it's being added to the nerd lexicon for future for future use. Um, Can I add something if to you, that too? Oh, absolutely. Please. I do want to clarify that um, also, Deb and I will we will see the possibilities and the materials when we're shopping together or we're setting up together. We talk about, sure. look at this, they might do this, or they might use this for pouring, or they could stack these, or we have all these ideas on how they might use it. So seeing the possibilities when we're offering them, and uh-huh. most often the children will surprise us and use it in a completely different way that we thought of. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes it might be in a way that might ruin the material or it's not safe. So it's okay to say no sometimes and it's Uh also amazing when it's a surprise and you weren't expecting it and look how amazing it is yeah well and I think that's that's probably part of and and thank you for saying that I think that's probably part of the researcher role that you've both been describing Mm -hmm. then is using the information that you have already gotten from observing and then seeing a new material and and thinking about how it might fit um which I don't know. I just think that's one of the most exciting parts of, of my work with kids mm-hmm. is trying to, to imagine how they might use something that I put in the room and then seeing it being used in a completely different way um, and being surprised by that. I think that's another. And I think you were quoting someone else in the book, but you said something about always looking for a surprise and the birth of a new idea, um, which I really like that that imagery, too, that just we're always looking for a surprise, which is not comfortable for some people. To, to be able to go in and say, 
I'm going to let go of a little bit of control and see where this goes. Um, So that's the moment of teaching that are so uh, nourishing. It's like this moment of tension, like what is happening and what am I going to do? Right. Mm -hmm. That happens so many times during the day because children are so different than we are. So Mm -hmm. to me, that's what's fun about it. It's like, Mm -hmm. there they go. Like the first story we start the book with it is we were doing this like Reggio inspired chalk activity with pastels and beautiful paper. And I was in Nadia's room. We were doing this observation thing. So it's like, what are the children going to do with these beautiful, a little bit expensive (laughs) materials, right? So we watch, and initially somebody was doing a little drawing, but then it became this incredible, I'm going to push them really hard, and oh, look at all the dust, and now I'm going to spread these things on my hands, and oh. And so then it became this total all about transforming, mm-hmm. right, where they eventually got uh, popsicle sticks and were, like, carving them out, and then water came, and it became goopy chalk. I mean, it was just... This, and, you know, the, we're looking at each other going, that's not what this is going to be, right? <laughs> this is going to be this beautiful Reggio chalk activity. <laughs> and instead, it became yeah. incredible. Yeah, it was still a beautiful chalk activity. It just looked different than you had imagined. You know, at some point, I think it's okay to stop that, yeah. too. Like, I do some of that in my in my work, where if I've set something beautiful up with some paints that have a particular notion of how you might explore these with paints not being all mixed, Mm -hmm. uh, and they start to mix, I'll say, this isn't for mixing right now. If you want to do that, you can go to this place. So you offer opportunity for mixing and that experience, but then you help children see this could be a different experience. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a bad thing to if you're acknowledging this is these are both wonderful stories to tell with paint but here's one that is going to be more careful and I used to call it careful painting if you don't want to do careful painting you can go <laughs> over here yeah. So. yeah and I think that's just a, a, good, a good example of when direct instruction is really appropriate in a classroom with young children when there's a specific when there is a, a good reason in a specific way that you want um, children to learn to use a material but uh, but the fact that you offer the choice for the messiness still honors that need that they have or that interest that they have. Yeah, and to me, it's like the idea that I think they're competent enough and deserve an experience. I used to tell them they get to be boss of <laughs> You mix up the paint, you're not the boss anymore. Ah. The but when carefully deciding what color to use and then you wash your brush and then you do this you can see you can choose what colors you want to make you get to be the boss they totally <laughs> went for that it was like they loved that idea of being boss of the paint but that didn't mean that there weren't uh-huh. other places where that happened or that I would be fierce and you know sort of disciplinarian about it that wasn't the point the point was that here's another experience mm-hmm. I want you to have know you'll like it and benefit from it and if you don't want that one fine go <laughs> yeah. here that's that's beneficial too so again that takes right. the study that yep. helps you do and that. the intention i mean uh, so yeah. yeah um well we're at 26 minutes that went really fast <laughs> do either of you have any last <laughs> thoughts that you'd like to end with for listeners who maybe are new to this idea of schema theory or want more information or are just curious in general. 
I wanted to say that um, don't let that title, like schema theory, mm -hmm. scare you off. You know what it means. I've had some feedback from some people. <laughs> I don't know what that means. And so, you know, the the book didn't really call their attention. But it's like, no, take a, take a look at it. This is full right. of real stories of children's work, children's play, teachers thinking and... Like the title says, you know, children's yes. lively minds. Don't let schema theory part scare you away. Uh, and the photos in the book books. are really great, too, for that, for for just showing that it's just real life and it's accessible. It doesn't have to be this scary academic idea kind of thing. Yeah, great. Thank you. Exactly. Um, uh, we really are proud of this book, I think, um, because it is real mm -hmm. stories from our practice and us, the, the uh, act of writing it so deepened our thinking about our practice because Nadia coming from preschool and me from toddler work, uh, I just think it's mm -hmm. going to be really useful for people to read it because it is accessible um, around stories of classrooms mm -hmm. and kids and teachers. And, and to me, it's just nothing better than being a researcher of your own practice and pausing and marveling uh, about the kids that you spend your days with. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do because everything uh, <laughs> conspires against us, slowing yeah. down, paying attention yeah. to kids. Everything does. The number of kids, the group size, the tasks. But if you can figure out a way to even pause for 30 seconds and notice these amazing people, and the skills they already have. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what we need. <laughs> I think that's that's such a great way to end this. Um, so I really appreciate both of you being on. And I'm going to, I haven't finished the book yet, so I hope it ends as well as it started. <laughs> but I'm going to get back to it. I'm going to finish it. I got interrupted with school stuff. So um, so again, thank you for your time today and for the book. And, um, and I hope to talk to you again sometime. All right. Thanks. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank Come you, back Heather. again for another episode. Goodbye. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.